In this, the final open volume of my report, I deal with three topics. The radicalisation of Salman Abedi, the planning and preparation for the attack by Salman Abedi and Hashim Abedi, and whether the attack could have been prevented by the security service and counter-terrorism policing. That's Sir John Saunders, chair of the Manchester Arena Inquiry, unveiling the findings of the inquiry's final report. Today we ask, could the Manchester Arena bombing have been prevented? This is the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello there, welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill with me, Daryl Morris, and in the Mill newsroom today, no Yoshi, so Jack Dalhamty joins us from the Mill newsroom. Hello Jack. Hi, how are you? I'm really well, thank you for being with us today, as well as talking about the Manchester Arena inquiry, the bombing inquiry, that we'll get into in a moment, and this big central question of whether the Manchester bombing could have been prevented. We're also going to be heading to Northenden as well to hear about the selection for a candidate for the local elections in May, which has kicked up a bit of an interesting story. And we're also going to hear from Oksana, who you might remember as being the owner of an Eastern European shop called Rodjana uh, around Cheatham Hill area, who we spoke to uh, pretty much exactly a year ago this week, just after the outbreak of the war in Ukraine. She is Ukrainian and she sort of took us into the Eastern European community in Manchester and um, gave us a bit of a sense, I suppose, of of the uh, immense shock and horror that was playing out at that time amongst the community. Well, we revisit her. I went to see her again uh, a year on to see how she's getting on. Her mum was struggling to get out of Ukraine. I can tell you that she is out of Ukraine. And we'll hear her story about how the Eastern European community are feeling and responding a year on. So we'll hear from Oksana shortly. Um, Firstly, Jack, to today's big news, and it is big news everywhere, um, and we were anticipating this on the horizon. It's it's going to be a big moment, this, Jack, for the the families and the the, the families of the victims uh, of those who were caught up in the Manchester Arena bombing, because the inquiry that has been taking place for a few years now is reaching its final conclusion today. The final report has been issued. Yeah, that's right. So volume three, the third and final report of the Manchester Arena Inquiry was published today, uh, or as we record this, and hopefully it'll be out by then. Um, and this one, I don't know if you remember, but the first volume looked at the sort of security agencies that were working at the arena on the night. Uh, the second volume looked at the emergency response to the attack, and this one looks at where um, the attack may have been prevented by secret services and how the two brothers who carried out and planned the attack, so Hashem and Sam and Abedi, were radicalised. So yeah, it's a big moment in, well, all round really, because it's it's a big moment for its finality, I guess, as well, because it really does draw it to an end. Yeah. Okay, so this big central question that it asks, Jack, is could MI5 have prevented this? Was there an opportunity at some point... In the in the the events that led up to it, for MI five to prevent Salman Abedi from doing what he did, what conclusions has it drawn today on that question? Yeah, um, the chair of the inquiry, Sir John Saunders, said that there was a realistic opportunity for MI five to prevent the attack, and that opportunity was missed. 
um, he describes a kind of communication breakdown between MI5 and counterterrorism police that meant two key pieces of intelligence weren't shared. And while the nature of that intelligence isn't um, disclosed in the report, because I don't know if you remember, but part of the hearings were held in secret in relation to MI5 for national security reasons, it found that essentially acting on said intelligence could have led to Abedi being stopped and interviewed when he returned to uh, returned to Manchester from Libya four days before the attack. And that's being seen as a kind of a key moment, really, where it, it could have prevented the attack. Right. And so um, and, and we don't know what was missed there, Jack, but we do know that the process did miss something. And who who are we talking about there? Who who hasn't or, or, or who does this report feel uh, didn't do their job? Well, there is one key witness who, if I recall, is uh, referred to as Witness C, who's an MI5 operative officer or worker who essentially didn't flag something or create a report on a piece of evidence soon enough. That There is a little bit of conflict between what the inquiry describes as like MI5's corporate position. So MI5 as an entity in itself says one thing about the evidence, which is that it didn't, um, they found it to be uh, relating to non-terrorist criminality. But the inquiry have kind of rejected that now on the grounds that two officers that um, testified to the inquiry said that these two pieces of intelligence together were a potential national security concern. So there is a bit of a, a, a conflict between what MI5 has said and what MI5 officers have testified. Right, I see. And... and um... I mean, it's 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 difficult, isn't it? This one, Jack. Is there any kind of, is there anything that's being pointed to as being the reason why that has missed or has been missed? If that makes sense. Um, no, not necessarily. I mean, as he makes clear in the report, there's no actual way of knowing whether or not these things being taken more seriously or being acted on sooner will have changed anything. It's just these were opportunities that were missed. That's essentially all that the inquiry. That's as far as it feels it can go, I believe. The next element that, that this considers, Jack, is is the radicalization of Salman Abedi, mm-hmm. um, and there's some and, and, and there's a couple of different areas to this, right? We're talking about family and friends and social media and education and uh, and the mosques that Salman Abedi attended. What what conclusions did it draw on that? So yeah, you pointed out there that there was those five key areas of. Abedi's life, um, family, friends, social media, education, and, and the mosque that he attended, and it did. It found that it was the Abedi family that had the, that held the kind of significant quote to quote significant responsibility for his radicalization. Um, it, it found that again quote noxious absences and malign presences were what uh, sort of attributed to that radicalization, and also his family, um, father, elder brother and mother all held extremist beliefs. And it's likely that he and his brother Hashem, the latter who's currently serving life in prison for helping plan the attack, were influenced by both their family, but also kind of radicalised each other by sort of feeding off one another's ideas. Um, so yeah, principally the family are kind of held responsible for that. There, there has been a lot of talk around the mosque, uh, Didsbury Mosque, in, in particular, where the family um, worshipped. You may have seen yesterday or, yeah, yesterday there was a 
interview with the chair of trustees of that mosque um, with the BBC who said that he would have done anything to have stopped the attack had he have known that um, that was a possibility. But in today's report, he's sort of referred to by Saunders as a not very trustworthy source in sort of giving a clear indication of how much he knew about the Abadis and how they um, their sort of presence in the mosque as well. Right, interesting. Um, the families, Jack, you know, the people that are right at the heart of this story, we've heard from them, haven't we, in response to this final report? Yeah, so they, they released a statement right after the report's um, publication. Uh, they said that it was deeply painful to read, uh, but also eye-opening. The said that there is a very it's very clear that there was a failure to properly assess key intelligence about Salman Abedi, a failure to put it into proper context, and most catastrophic of all, a delay in acting on it. Um they said this is a devastating conclusion to us. Um and yeah, you, you are right obviously that central to all of this is the families. And funnily enough, yesterday in, it, well, throughout the inquiry, the families have sort of talked about how victims of catastrophes and terrorist attacks like in Manchester and also similar things like Grenfell and Hillsborough, the um, families of those people and the people who survived kind of need more support. We've written about it before. Uh, at the, on the, fi- the fifth year anniversary, we wrote a, a piece about how are we doing enough for arena survivors? And... Yesterday, so Wednesday, the government did announce this um, independent public advocate, which will essentially offer support to families and survivors in the wake of these kinds of events. And that's exactly the kind of thing that has been advocated for in the past, where people have talked about like survivors' charters and that sort of thing. So looking forward, I suppose that is one thing to draw on the inquiry's findings is this kind of the way that we need to support um the families at the centre of these things, especially when it's, you're talking about like supporting them through the inquiry process, uh, which has been a big deal over the past year or so for obvious reasons. Mm. And um, I, I suppose there's the other element of this, which we have considered before, Jack, because it's been rumbling for a while now, but the, there is Martin's Law as well, um, which has progressed through Parliament. And that kind of, you know, Fiega Murray, who is Martin Het's mum, uh, alongside some counter terror experts, I mean, she's a remarkable woman. I mean, so I think you know, at these moments, it's always worth us dwelling on how incredible a woman she is and how she's sort of been to. She's dedicated her life, actually, hasn't she, now to counter terrorism and to, um, to to sort of helping to to uh, speak in schools and to talk to people about radicalization, about all of these themes. But as part of that, has also advocated for what has become known as Martin's Law, but is about protecting large venues large large events and basically increasing security and training and uh, security training for these kind of large events yeah the protect duty and that kind of come that draws a lot on what we was spoken about in the first volume about the kind of preparedness of security services on the ground um that were working at the arena on that day and yeah it, 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 that is mostly in relation to you know sp- making sure that those sort of preparations are in place in venues of most sizes, more or less, as well. I think it was something that was mostly um, sort of exclusively happening in bigger, bigger, very large venues. Uh, but the protectivity looks to kind of make that a more broad brush policy, which I think is really important. Mm. Um, we're at the end of this process then, Jack. 
um, you and I have spoken about this on a couple of occasions, haven't we? We've been following this arena inquiry, of course, pretty closely over the course of the last couple of years, it'll be. Um, oh, I mean, is it a moment for us to sort of take a breath and to reflect on the inquiry and, I guess, what it's unpicked, but also this monumental moment in the lifetime of this city um, that will never really leave us, will it, I don't suppose? No, and I suppose the findings of each inquiry is uh, almost kind of drilled it deeper, I think, into the consciousness of the people that live here. Because it's it. this has been like the kind of lasting aftershock of the event is, is going back and combing back through it and understanding where opportunities were missed. The sort of failure of, you know, the, I remember uh, when we spoke about the, the previous report, which was about the, the emergency services, talking about that sense of frustration at looking what was missed but also at understanding that each of these missed opportunities especially in, in in the case of that report were small things that mounted into this such much much greater tragedy and understanding that I think again as I say it, it makes it feel a lot um, more real to the people that live here in, in kind of broadening our understanding of it if that makes sense mm, yeah um, and I guess it's one of those things that, I mean, I've spoken about this on the podcast, but I was I was there that night um, at the arena and it wasn't at the concert, but I had a, an apartment just next door and heard the bomb and went to the scene and watched the scene unfold. And, you know, I've spent quite a lot of time talking to the families afterwards and covering this story and un- unpicking this story and, uh, you know, and trying to figure out where it sits in our history and what impact it really had. And, and you know, one of the things that I that really sticks with me is, um, is speaking to Fegan Marie and getting to know her a little bit. She's obviously channeled a lot of her grief into her work in counter-terror and around radicalization, etc. But one of the things I remember saying to her, I remember saying, you know, if you don't mind me asking, where are you on the on the on the journey of grief at the moment? And 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 Martin. And she said, Well, I've got a picture of Martin on the on the window frame in the living room. And since the twenty second of May that year, 2017, she hasn't been able to look at that picture. She comes down every morning and she opens the curtains and she wonders every day if today is going to be the day that she's been able to look at that picture. And I think this inquiry is really important, clearly. And this inquiry will help a huge amount and it will probably help some families with their grief as well. But I think as it stands, only in her own time will Fegan Murray be able to look at that picture of Martin. Um, Okay. We'll keep an eye on it though, won't we, Jack? And we'll 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 come to it because there'll be plenty of other bits and bobs uh, to unpick as the court over the course of, I guess, the perhaps the next few weeks, months, and years as those learns are put into practice, especially for MI five and for the security services. Um, let's move on though uh, to Northenden, Jack, where uh, there is an interesting story developing around the Labour Party candidate for the local elections in May. Ticks to Northenden. What's going on? Yeah, so essentially in Northern at the moment, they're still needing a candidate for May's local election because the, their original candidate, who's named Sarah Judge, she uh, I think she stood in last year's local election as well for, for a different um, ward but didn't manage to get it. Um, she stepped down for personal reasons. But what's interesting about this is Northern uh, originally, so the members will have originally had an all-women shortlist, um, which is something that got introduced back in the 90s. Um, to try and kind of help with the gender imbalance on the council. It was introduced by Labour before, just just in Labour. And they would have had an all-women 
panel of possible candidates, but have asked to open it back up to male candidates. And this was rubber stamped um, at a meeting on Monday. And I've been speaking to those who are kind of with knowledge of the decision, should I say. And they've said that essentially members just wanted a broader choice of candidates so that they could be sure that whoever they do pick kind of hits the ground running because they're going to have a very short time frame to mount a campaign uh, before May. But then some who are a bit more sceptical have essentially said, well, this is quite a safe seat anyway. It seems odd to reverse this, um, this all-women shortlist, which is not something that happens very often. I'm not even sure if it's happened before. Um and others mentioned a feeling that with Manchester City Council now sort of approaching a majority female council, there's 50-ish out of 96 councillors of women. There are men who are sort of interested in seats but are finding it difficult to get selected and it's this whole kind of, should we keep the all-women shortlist there? It's quite an interesting situation only because it's something that I've not really heard of before, someone reversing that. So I thought that was an interesting one to flag. Mm, yeah, very interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, okay, uh, we'll keep an eye on what's happening in Northern Dern. Um, also, Jack, this week we um, I, I went to revisit somebody who we spoke to on the podcast a year ago. In fact, almost exactly a year ago. Over the course of the last week or so, um, and last Friday in particular, marked the first anniversary of the war in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin. And of course, there's been a huge amount of reflection on that um, over the course of the last week on uh, all over the place, in the national media. Um, Vladimir Zelensky, of course, in, in Ukraine, holding a press conference, Joe Biden in the days before, uh, visiting Kiev in a surprise visit. And there's been a huge amount of um, activity here and, and, and protests and statements made around this key anniversary. Um I went back to visit somebody that we spoke to just after the outbreak of the war in Cheatham Hill, a woman called Oksana, who owns a shop called uh, Rodna, Rodena, uh, which means motherland in Ukrainian. And we spoke to her to get a bit of a sense a year ago of the sort of shock and, um, I, I mean, just horror, I guess, with which uh, the, the Eastern European community here, so far away from home, were watching events play out in Ukraine. Uh, she was talking at the time about her mother having been uh, in Ukraine. She was in Lviv, so it wasn't. She was in the east, so it wasn't. Um, it wasn't necessarily the west. Sorry, so it wasn't necessarily a, um, a, a, a made target at that point. There has, of course, been bombing and shelling in Lviv since. Um, but she was deeply worried about that. Deeply worried about her homeland, and she also took us into some of the tensions that were that were brewing in the Eastern European community in Manchester at the time as well. So last week I went to revisit Oksana, and here's what happened. Hi, Oksana, how are you? Okay, thank you. Nice to see you. Nice to see you again, yeah. How are you? I'm okay. Still coping. Trying our best. A very sad anniversary and we're all dreading because, you know, we never expected something like this to happen to all of us a year ago. But today and every day we're hoping it will end and uh, we're expecting a miracle, I would say. But it's not going to happen. Everybody says so. Last time we spoke, you'd not long come back from Ukraine, I think just a few days before. Have you been able to go back since? I haven't been able to go back. And I had to bring my mother, 80-year-old mother, 
from there, unfortunately, it was a very, very long journey for us because she didn't have any passports, valid passports. It was expired 15 years ago. But uh, thanks to Polish uh, border authorities, they let her go through the border, you know, from Ukraine. And I met her in Poland. And then we went to Paris uh, to obtain British visa. But again, because she didn't have a passport, we had to wait there for a month. But luckily we got through, you know, um, uh, we came here and since then she's trying to settle, but it's like we say to pull an old tree with the roots and, and plant it somewhere else. It will never regrow. You know, she misses her home dearly. She misses her uh, house, you know, her bed, everything, her friends, you know. Uh. She's saying to me every single day, I wish it will end because she's watching uh, news on TV and uh, you know, she gets up and she, oh, maybe we will go summertime, we will go, you know, and it's going to be warmer, we will be able to go, you know. I hope too, because we, we miss our country. We, we, my husband's family is still there. And you, um, you run this, this shop, of course, yeah. which is quite central. It's an important part of the Eastern European community in Manchester. Yes. Just explain the shop and who comes here. We've been on the market for nearly 19 years. And uh, when it all started uh, for me as a business, it was uh, to unite people from former Soviet Union republics. We were family by then, you know, but look what happened to all of us now. But still, it was okay for everybody. But now, since the war started, uh, there were some uh, talks, you know, that Rodina and Rodina, uh, Russian people don't like it because it's Rodina, it's Ukrainian. Ukrainian people don't like it because it's Rodina, but for me, I'm Ukrainian. It's always been re- Ukrainian. We celebrate Ukrainian here. We've got flags and symbolics and everything. And uh, yeah, but there were some frictions between Russian and Ukrainian customers. But I think uh, by now, the ones who believe in Russian invasion, I mean, r- r- Russian customers, they don't come anymore. They don't come? They don't come because I don't see many people who used to come and was friendly. I just don't see them but it's their choice you know I am not gonna fight with them I'm not gonna prove them anything because this is my business I don't understand why people can treat especially being here you know abroad far away from our uh, countries but we need to be together we need to be strong and so you're saying that that at the outbreak of the war that there were tensions between Russian and Ukrainian Yeah, there were some tensions. Uh, Yeah, I I got some messages from Russian customers asking if we come to your shop, uh, crazy Ukrainians not going to beat us up. This type of messages, which was like, you know, we are friendly towards everybody, you know. It can feel quite strange to think that there are people here in Manchester, in the Russian community, who've effectively bought the idea from Vladimir Putin that you are the enemy. It's all of, uh, due to propaganda. They watch uh, Russian television. You know, if you watch it yourself, you might become curious why is that. But they, you know, there are lots of people working on it, and uh, they so brainwash them. So they do believe 
uh, I recently found out w- w- that one of my friends, very good friend, we've been, you know, 20 years, and uh, she just stopped communicating with me, you know, and I found out that another friend of mine called her and, and told her she's from Belarus, which is part of Soviet Union as well, yeah? And I know she watches Russian television and programs and everything, and uh, when, when it all started... You know, in 2014, she told me by then that uh, it's not that easy, Oksana. It's, uh, you know, uh, it's Russian territory anyway. And she believed it's supposed to be Russian. And I I disagree, but we never had any, you know, uh, tough conversation about it. But recently I found out that she said, that's all due to Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine invaded Russia. Ukraine started this war. And very, very painful that you lose your fr- friends as well. But nothing you can do, you know. Can you imagine a future where those Russian members of the community that no longer come here to what is an important part of the community, your shop, do come again? Um, you see, I would say it would depend uh, with if they feel we do have sometimes such people coming in and saying oh that's all you will take this you know piece of fabric down this is a ukrainian in, flag in polite got. language what did they say what you is t- this t- nazi t- symbol doing here uh, I, I had someone telling me what is this uh, nazi symbol doing here and uh, russian yeah. russian they, they come in and they say they point to the ukrainian flag and say it's a nazi flag yeah what is this doing here? You don't know what to answer. Yeah, very hard. Very emotional still. And how, how are you? How have you been? Uh, it's been a very tough year. Uh, I think about my country. I, I think about my family. You know, uh, nothing brings joy anymore because you know that your country is in place, you know, in... I have families coming here, Ukrainian refugee, every single day, and they share the history, they, their stories, you know. Yesterday I had a very young couple from Kharkiv, which is northern part of Ukraine, and they were saying uh, we, they saw explosions, you know, they saw their building collapse, the way they, they were treated, you know, they, the way they were humiliated, you know, we women were undressed and checked on everything. They phone was scrolled and checked on everything, who you're writing to, what you're watching, what you're um, looking, you know. And then they had to escape via Russia to Europe and to England. And they, they were saying to me, Oksana, you wouldn't believe. We, we saw it in the movies, but never thought it's going to happen to us, young people 25 30s you know late 20s do you think the people who have fled ukraine who are here find some solace perhaps in your store and being here oh yes uh, i would really like to think so uh, and i can see the joy the very first glance and especially when they hear us speaking ukrainian you know they were so, oh my God, we're so, I'm, I'm telling you, I have goosebumps, you know, because it really brings me joy. By then, it brings me joy, you know, I, and I know I'm doing something right, you know. They might tell me their story to share it, you know, we, we, we might hug and kiss and cry together, you know. This is how it works. That was Oksana, the owner of the Eastern European shop Rodena uh, in Cheatham Hill in Manchester.
you know, one of the things that really strikes me about that, Jack, is, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be surprised by this, but I am. The way that Vladimir Putin's propaganda and misinformation has landed in Manchester. Yeah, I mean, the reach of that sort of stuff is crazy. But when you consider stuff like Telegram chats, like I remember when it first, um, when the war first started last year, I joined about, I don't know, 15 or 20 different Telegram chats, of, you know, East, from Eastern European communities in and around Manchester. And the way that this stuff proliferates, it's not actually that surprising that people um, come to, you know, kind of believe similar stuff that I think we often like, uh think that a lot of that stuff is just exclusively contained within Russia but with the way that obviously modern communication works and social media it's just not all like people can come to believe that kind of propaganda more or less anywhere in the world hmm. I suppose that, that links us intrinsically doesn't it to our first story about Salman Abedi and about radicalization yeah. and about you know toxic ideology like that um okay one more quick hit from us this week uh jack before we go and this is about rental prices in manchester city center uh no light story to finish this is a real pain in people's backside isn't it uh if you if you try to find someone to live in manchester what's going on yeah i don't think it'll come as a surprise to anyone but rental prices in manchester city center grew faster than anywhere else outside of london um according to jll last year or in the second half of last year uh the annual growth rate in the city um in rental price was 22 percent. i think in birmingham which was the next closest it was 18 percent, and that's down to a few different things um it could be down to the rise in mortgage rates after last year's uh eminently not successful mini budget and it could also be down to the the end of help to buy in october so that those sort of two forces have caused a lot of people to postpone home ownership plans which have meant more people have stayed renting which as a result has driven up uh, rental prices, according to JLL. 22%, man. Wow. 22%. Goodness me. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, almost it from us for this week. Um, but, Jack, we always like to give some people some stuff to do around Greater Manchester in the course of the next couple of weeks. What 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 are you excited about in the Mill Newsroom that's coming up? Oh, yeah. Molly has been speaking to... Um, you'll, I don't know if you'll... Uh, I may not be telling the truth, but pretty sure that Manchester at one point was... Um, described as the kind of influencer capital of the UK. We have like a real high volume of influencers living here. If you remember, I think it was where Molly May came first for her apartment. Obviously, she lives in now because she's with Tom Fiori. Anyway, another thing. Um, she's been speaking to influencers about their life, their work. They're obviously quite easily stigmatised figures, I think, influencers. People just kind of think, oh, you know, you've robbed a living, etc., etc. Um, Molly has found that that is not necessarily the case. And yeah, she's she's spoken to a, a few of them, and it's from conversations that I've had in the office about her with it. It just sounds fascinating to me because I just find influencers really inf- in, ha, not influencing, interesting. <laughs> that was close. You can't get enough of trips to Dubai and uh, cans of fuel drink, can you? Yeah, I, I was going to say bougie, but it's closed. The restaurant bougie you can't go there anymore. Never mind. Yeah. Um, hey, that sounds really interesting. Inside Manchester, yeah. the influence community. All right, well, um, uh, keep an eye on that uh, by subscribing. You can get that in your inbox. Uh, manchestermill.co.uk is where you subscribe to get that and more top quality journalism and some recommendations for things to do, which we are going to do now. Yeah. Uh, what's on your radar, Jack? Yeah, it's TEDx Manchester this Saturday. Uh, a bunch of TED Talks at Bridgewater Hall, um, which are all look really exciting. But the one, well, actually, Andy Spinoza's there. We should plug Andy Spinoza because. 
he'll also be at the uh, the Mills event at the end of this month talking about his new book. But I was particularly um, drawn to this one, jo- Joy Milne. Uh, you may have already heard of her. She she used to be a nurse, and she she essentially realised that she somehow could smell Parkinson's disease. Um, she said that one day she woke up and noticed that her husband had just began to smell distinctively, distinctly different to her, and she didn't know what it was. And then years later, uh, he was well, twelve years later, he was sadly diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And when she visited Parkinson's UK, which is obviously the charity uh, to support um, people with the disease, she noticed that same smell in there. Um, And then she's realised that with this sort of hypersensitive uh, sense of smell, she can diagnose Parkinson's disease at an earlier rate, well, earlier than the NHS can. Um, So she's given a talk about that. She's working with uh, scientists at the University of Manchester to try and work out a way to improve early diagnosis of of Parkinson's. So that would be an amazing talk. Wow, extraordinary. Absolutely incredible. All right, that's at TEDx in Manchester of the weekend. Uh, My recommendation is from the Lowry, uh, When Darkness Falls, uh, the play about... It's a bit of a ghost story, really, isn't it? It's kind of... um, It's about... It's it's a play about... um, a ghost expert, a paranormal expert, and a, and somebody who's a sort of sceptical guy. He plays a history teacher, uh, and they're on a small, small island in Guernsey, and um, they are kind of recording a podcast, basically, uh, about the islands, and um, it goes from there. Um, and it looks brilliant. It looks really, really good. It's getting lots of really rare reviews. The Guardian have been very, very, uh, very um, positive about it. Uh, so you can find that at the Lowry only until Saturday. So make sure you get yourself in there uh, before it ends this weekend. That's it from us for this week. Don't forget, we are back in your podcast feed next week, and you can like and subscribe to this to make sure that you get a nudge as soon as we land. The comments are always very welcome as well, by the way. They help other people find the podcast, which means that we can keep doing it. And don't forget, if you want more quality journalism in your inbox every week, manchestermill.co.uk. For now, thank you. 